Hello, everyone. Good evening. Good morning. Good afternoon, regardless of what time it is where you are. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Uh, where I am, <clears throat> it's the evening, just before eight o'clock on the East Coast, Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. Um, I still don't know why I give you those timestamps, because, of course, depending on when you listen to this, even the day it's released, it's probably a week and a half or so away from now. But in any case, it gives you a sense of context, because today, uh, tonight, um, I'm excited to welcome a guest from my past, another fellow operator, but someone I haven't talked to in a long time, and really, um, to be honest, hadn't talked to much even when we were stationed together. His name is Cole Smith. He was an operator for at least a time in the 321st Missile Squadron at F.E. Warren Air Force Base, Cheyenne, Wyoming. <clears throat> and I reached out to Cole uh, a week ago now, about a week ago asking if you would come on the show and if we could have a conversation about a variety of things, primarily nuclear weapons and deterrence and the reasons behind his penning of an article that was published by The Guardian. It's a newspaper in the UK published online Thursday, 10th of March, 2022. And the headline is, I was a nuclear missile operator. There have been more near misses than the world knows. By Cole Smith. It's an opinion piece. It's an editorial. Um, I came across it not originally by the article. I didn't find the article first. I actually came across it <clears throat> after receiving a note from the president, I think, of the American Association or the Association of Air Force Missile Leaders, excuse me, the executive director of the AAFM, wrote a letter in response to the article. <clears throat> and sent it to all of the organization's members on March 14th. And he takes issue with, among other things, Cole's calling out of the integrity of a missileer who would consider using a nuclear weapon. Now, I think um, in fairness to Cole, and we're gonna talk about this, I don't think the AAFM um, executive director gave the appropriate level of shrift, we'll say, to Cole's piece. Uh, but I also do have questions for Cole about his piece and what led him to write it. And I think at the end of the day, no matter how much or how little Cole and I may agree, or whether we disagree about literally everything, the fact that we're having this conversation is what's most important. When I reached out to him and asked him, uh, first, he, he thanked me for letting him know that he had gotten some feedback, you know, critical or otherwise, um, particularly from an organization that communicates, tries to communicate with a lot of current and former missile operators and missile maintainers from the community. And he was also ready and willing absolutely to have a conversation because I think he too believes in the importance of talking, not just to people you may or may not agree with, but about serious issues like nuclear weapons and particularly in the shadow of Russia's invasion of Ukraine since the end of February, it's a topic that's all of a sudden on the foremost of people's minds when it hasn't been in three decades, right? <clears throat> So uh, I'll keep my intro relatively short. You know, like, like always, I'm going to start probably with, with asking him about his background, how he got into the Air Force in the first place, his path into the nuclear operations field, and then let curiosity and conversation take us from there. Uh, as a quick intro to Cole, he is today a screenwriter and director living in Colorado. 
He did attend the United States Air Force Academy and graduated and then served for five years as an Air Force nuclear missile officer in Wyoming. He then went on to earn an MFA, Master of Fine Arts in Screenwriting from Columbia University. Uh, his feature screenplay, Damascus, won the 2021 Sloan Screenplay Award. And it is, if you're a missileer, you probably know what it's about. It tells the true story of an explosion at a Titan missile facility in Damascus, Arkansas, and is informed by his experience as a missile launch officer. Uh, he just published a piece in The Guardian. He's published essays elsewhere. He's a filmmaker, a rock climber, and an alpinist, which if we've got time, I will ask him really what that means. I'm guessing it has to do with rock climbing and mountains and whatnot, things that really I am not all familiar with, but uh, I have no doubt Cheyenne was a fun assignment for somebody like that. And it says he's still living in Colorado. So I have no doubt um, uh, that is, you know, he loves having the mountains in his backyard, I'm sure. Uh, so I'm gonna stop blabbering on. It's March 22nd, which means we are still in the throes of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The US and NATO are still trying to figure out what to do. Um, for those of you who come from the ICBM community and know me and listen to the show because of that, I hope this is a valuable conversation for you. If it generates more questions, all the better. I'd love to hear what you think after the show concludes. If you, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, if you don't come from the world of nuclear weapons, just give this a listen and also let me know what you think, please. No matter what the opinions are and no matter what he and I think and where Cole and I agree or disagree, this is a conversation everyone can have and should have, I believe. Without further ado, Cole Smith. Okay, hey Cole, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, I'm really excited to talk with you. I know we've got uh, just under an hour, so I, I wanna get right into it. Um, before, so the, the intro for this is pre-recorded, so folks will have already heard a couple of minutes talking about you, this conversation, where it came from, and then I read a bit from your bio on your website, but if you would go ahead, just start with a little bit about yourself, where you came from, um, and really what, what interests me and I think what interests others is what led you to the Air Force Academy and into missiles originally. Yeah. Um... Well, thanks for, um, you know, again, the platform to chat with you and to, and to talk a little bit about all this. Um, you know, I um, you know, went to the Air Force Academy. I'm a 20, 2012 grad from the Air Force Academy. And, you know, I think uh, what led me there was um, really just what led what leads a lot of people um, to the military, which is a way to pay for school that I mean, I didn't have much of a military background. I didn't know um, a whole lot about what I was getting myself into. But um I um, went and took a look at it and, um, and decided that, uh, you know, I, I, I liked it there and wanted to give it a shot. So yeah, really looking to pay for school. I also was a recruited swimmer at the time. So I was kind of playing that game of where could I go and swim division one um, on a full scholarship, which was not many places. Um, and so like there were other division one schools I could have gone and swam at, but I would have had still had a, you know, hefty portion of the tuition I would have had to worry about oh, covering. Yeah. So um, yeah, just kind of playing that game of, um, where can I, you know, go that, that was, um, there were school was paid for. And, and then, you know, of course, once I started getting curious about the Academy and, and really looking more into it, the thing I, 
liked about it was um, I, I, I was always curious um, about the military. I always wanted to learn more about it. I was a big history buff in high school. Um, so the military generally was, was interesting to me, but like I said, I didn't have much practical experience in terms of family members or people like that telling me much about it. So, um, kind of got in, in, interested in that later. Um, and, and once I was at the Academy, you know, I, uh, really didn't know much about missiles until I, until I was assigned that, uh, career field my senior year. So. Um, I tried to go public affairs um, at the time. I don't know if it's still like this, but there were only like one or two public affairs spots per year. Um, oh, wow. And I was, yeah, and I was not in that like top 10 percentile of the academy. <laughs> so, uh, so once they skipped that first one, um, I really didn't care what I got after public affairs. I was an English major. And so that was like, I was really interested in that. And when I didn't get that, it was sort of just on to like whatever they needed me to do. And at the time, needs of the air force meant um meant missiles <laughs> um that's always so, what it came yeah. back to was needs of the air force yeah yeah exactly um but um you know and honestly for me um this is like maybe a long answer to your question but it ended up being the perfect career field for me um it was like you know a way for me to to serve and and feel like i really served you know um like the the um you know, the amount of alerts I did, the people I served with, the bases I went to, which were, you know, I, I wouldn't have probably lived in a place like Cheyenne if I hadn't been told to go live there. All of those things yeah, were um, were unique, you know, to the job and and made my time in the Air Force feel unique and, and special to me in a way. And like I actually served. And then it was also a job where, you know, I was spending all my free time reading and writing and making movies. Um, and there's really no other job in the Air Force that I can think of where you, you would have as much time to kind of work the shift schedule and be able to, to do that sort of thing. Um, so I was able to read and write and, and make a lot of movies while I was there. So um, it ended up sort of checking all the boxes for me in terms of what I wanted to do with my time in the Air Force. So, so I definitely want to get to the filmmaking piece, but what did you this this next question is going to feed directly into the, the response that i saw to your guardian article which is kind of what generated this whole thing so what did you think so was space and what we used to call space and missiles or missiles anywhere on your list did you have a list after pa that's a i, I did have a list i think i had to fill out like a top 10 and i think it was somewhere on the list um to be honest with you, I don't really remember where it was on the list. Uh, and like I said, after PA, you know, I was, I was young and I, and, and I didn't really have, um, you know, much, I, like, I didn't want to fly. It wasn't like I had a lifelong passion to fly or something. Yeah. So outside of that, I was really just kind of game for whatever they gave me. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, no, that works. So then what did you think getting, getting missiles out of the academy and then getting to Vandenberg for the training assignment. What were your first impressions? D did you think, you said you didn't know too much about missiles until you got assigned the job. So what were your first impressions? I mean, walking into the unit at Vandenberg and, and starting to learn the technical parts of the job? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, the first impressions were super important at that time. I mean, I think one of the things that I wish um, and, I, and I will say that the first couple of weeks at Vandenberg were great, where it was like, eventually the fire hose at Vandenberg hits you, 
But yeah. the first couple of weeks were like, you know, a little bit of missile history, a little bit of just like talking to your instructors who had, you know, been out on crew and figuring out what life was like out there. And um, so the first couple of weeks I, I thought were great because they were just sort of like, you know, exploring and just like, what is this life going to be like? Um, and uh, I do wish that there was more education on what missile, what a career in missiles is at the academy. Um, I mean, I did four years there and I basically had no clue what I was walking into. Um, I didn't. And I mean, to that, I mean, like I, I knew generally about our um, nuclear arsenal and about our missile force, but I didn't have any idea of like what the day to day would be like. You know, oh, you yeah. hear a lot about, you know, what life as a pilot is like, or what life even is like, you know, an airfield maintainer is like, or something like that, but you don't really hear anything about what life as a missile year is going to be like. Um, so I think the first couple of weeks for me were really just like, again, thinking back to how young I was too, it was less of um, like, you know, the policy behind these things or any of the stuff I may have been writing about in the Guardian article and more about just like, what does my life look like now? Had you known, had you met a missileer then or, or anyone even tangentially connected to nukes before you got to Vandenberg? Was there anybody at the academy that you can remember? No, there was, there was one guy who I ended up um, getting to know quite well and is a good friend of this day, um, Joe Zimmerman, um, who was like a year ahead of me. And as I was graduating, he had a friend in, that was a close friend of mine at the academy. So literally at my academy graduation, he had just finished his missile training at Vandenberg and he was going to F.E. Warren. And that was the first time I'd ever talked to a missileer. And at that point, you know, he hadn't even pulled an alert. Um, yeah, so, so he's, yeah. He's barely knowledgeable, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, did you, so I don't remember, for me it was 2009 and I remember uh, there's, I think it's the second or third day in the missile qualification portion. We, I'm still of the generation that had to do space qualification first. So when you got into the ICBM phase, you they gave you the memo with all the different um, paragraphs on it that you had to initial by that basically boils down to, you will launch when directed, you won't launch when you shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. Do you remember that? And do you remember at all how you felt that day or or in those few minutes when they're passing the letters around it's it's almost to me like a rubber stamp type scenario but i mean i remember reading that letter and they told us you know take your time read it and make sure you're sure do you mm -hmm. have any memory of that day i do um i actually remember it well because um it ended up not not being just a day for me um so i and my, and again, I could be wrong about this part, but my recollection in 2012 was that they gave us that paper on day one. Um, okay. It was, it was, we, we walked into the conference room. We had, um, you know, the, the, um, I believe the wing commander spoke to us and then um we had a presentation we watched the classic missile video with the dun 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 you know oh, yeah. that. uh on youtube then, folks uh, the soundtrack yeah, never exactly. gets old <laughs> it's burned in my memory uh -huh. um, and uh and then i and and i think i think i'm right about this but again maybe maybe my memory is a little hazy but i think 
on that first day, we then got the piece of paper that said like, it was right before we broke for lunch. And they basically said, you know, um, and, and, and again, they, they didn't take it flippantly, but, um, you know, it was like you said, they said, take your time, take a look at it, read it, sign it and, t- and turn it back in. Um, that said, I remember that every single person in the room pretty much signed it and turned it in like right there on the spot. Um, yep. and, and maybe there were one or two that didn't, but, um, I held on to mine and went up to, um, my instructor and just asked, I was like, how much time do I have to think about this? Um, and again, he was very gracious. He didn't, you know, he wasn't flipping about it. He said, let me talk, you know, to my leadership and, and get you an answer to that. But, um, you don't have to sign it this second. And, uh, and eventually I did have to go and talk to, um, somebody higher up, um, and, and again, it wasn't punishment. They were just sort of trying to just answer any questions I might've had. Um, and I think looking back on the whole thing, cause there were, I read some comments about, um, you know, some comments on the article from some folks who were a little bit salty about my position that were saying, you know, every day with, you know, PRP, you're sort of like, you're attesting that you will do this. And, and I get that, but I think one of the things that really, that I really remember about this signing the paper this first time is that I still knew nothing about what it meant to be a missile operator. This is day one. Let's say my memory is hazy. It's the first week at some point. Um, That's really not early enough, you know, because again, one of the comments kind of said you get a full history on missiles and nukes and all this sort of stuff. And my response is, well, I hadn't at that point. Not by the time Um, you have to make that decision. No, you're right. No, we weren't that way either. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I remember, um, and I actually like at the, at the time I was going to a Greek Orthodox church. So I remember like getting dinner with my priest. Um, I would have like long calls with my mom and dad. Um, and you know, eventually, obviously I, I signed it and decided that it was something that I would do. Um, but I think the, one of the things that really stuck with me was just how little I knew at the, at that point when I was being asked to sign pretty much the most important document that you could sign as a missile operator. So do you remember, can you speak at all to why you ultimately decided to sign it? And, and yeah, I can. extension, la- launch a weapon if ordered. That's the presumption anyway, while you're on alert. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that like, Honestly, I'm particularly happy, and my parents and my priest all know this as well. I wasn't particularly happy with the advice I got from them, um, which was okay. essentially like, you know, if you don't sign it, you could potentially be kicked out. And I mean, again, would it have gone that way? I don't know. Um, but at the time, I mean, it, it it wasn't unthinkable that they would have been like, okay, you're like, you're not going to do this job like you're gone and now you got to pay back all the academy stuff, which was like a quarter million dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a huge disincentive. So That's yeah. It, it's a disincentive. I mean, that was what it, whether it was ever spoken or not, and I'm sure it wasn't spoken. Like I, again, never felt that kind of pressure from my leadership, but, but what it did feel like was like, if you don't sign it, like you could get kicked out and owe all this money, which at 22 was a big deal. And so the advice I got was pretty much like, you're probably not going to launch. So, you know, just sign it. Don't like, you know, which is, which I don't, I don't feel is very good advice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because it does matter. It does matter a lot. Um, And uh, I mean, I will tell you that um, 
it's something I, I definitely, and I think it's something a lot of missile officers um, think about a lot is, you know, if the order comes right now, am I going to do it? I mean, I think a good missile operator thinks about that every time they go out. Um, and I think the problem, and one of the points that, that I'm hoping to make with, with my writing and, and with, you know, subsequent pieces, is not necessarily how you feel about nukes or what the policy is, but that it's kind of odd we're not having a discussion about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, it was something for me, again, that I wrestled with pretty much every day that I went out. And I don't know that I ever had a discussion with it, you know, with, you know, at the O club or at, at the bar after an alert with, um, you know, my commander or with my flight commanders or something, because it was just so assumed. It was like, well, you signed that paper years ago at Vandenberg. Why are we still talking about this kind of thing? Um, and I was just always surprised that there wasn't more of a conversation about it. So I want to, there's a couple different places I could take this, but, but given the time, I, I want to jump to the AAFM letter that originally mm -hmm. is what I got in my email, which then sent me to the Guardian to your piece, and then what led me to reach out to you. Have, has anyone mm -hmm. sent this to you? It occurred to me I should have sent this to you, but have you seen it? Well, it's, uh, that's a good question. I saw a very long Facebook post from them that I assume is probably the same thing, but I'm, I'm not sure because no one actually formally sent me anything. Okay, so this, and, and I won't read the entire thing. Um, I think I can actually post a link to it on the, on the blog post when I publish the episode, but <clears throat> from James Warner, the executive director of the Associate, Association of Air Force Missileers. I was mm -hmm. a member and I still can't remember the name of it ever. Um, it, it's a, it's a rather long letter, but the part I want to focus on is at the end, because we talk about the letter you sign and you already point out, and, and I will say you're right, at least to the extent that this was also my experience, you know, day one or day two or day three, wherever it is at the start of training, I don't remember even the video. We didn't talk about any history. We didn't, we only knew that this was a nuclear specific job and so that carries additional baggage for the lack of a better word i'm sure they use the word responsibility but it was really this ephemeral kind of a thing like you couldn't really pin it down anyway uh here's the, the last bit of warner's letter mr smith served 2012 to 2017 as missile operator meaning he signed on to the use of nuclear weapons and accepted the fact that he would launch given a valid presidential order yet he is suddenly writing about the dangers of nuclear weapons. His question of integrity is an interesting one. Is he questioning his own integrity when he was a missileer or is he questioning the integrity of the entire ICBM crew force? Out of all of Mr. Smith's misstatements, this one bothers missileers the most. And I, I think that's a typo. I think it should say this one should bother missileers the most. To continue, like all of those who have served or are currently serving our country, missileers took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. Missileers are first and foremost Air Force members where, quote, integrity first is and will always be a core value. So really the big question is, why did you write the article? Um, and then secondary to that, specific to the integrity piece, I guess to, to the extent that you can and that you're willing answer his question is, is this really sudden or is this something that you had been thinking about your entire time? And I'm, and I'm guessing I know the answer based on what you said so far, but 
I'd like you to have the chance to answer to it yourself. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, yeah, the answer is that it's definitely not sudden. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to that. I mean, one is that, that like the quotes from Greg Devlin that I used in that article were based on years of interviews I've done with the men that were at Damascus um, on the night that it exploded. Uh, I, inter I interviewed, I got that quote from Greg two years prior to that incident or to this article. Um, so I've been researching, you know, that specific incident. Um, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about just, you know, my thought process while I was in um, the fact that it was a big deal to me when I was asked to sign the paper. And you could even go farther back to papers that I wrote about. I was always a little surprised that they gave me missiles in the first place because I was one of, I remember I had a military strategic studies class where I was like the only person in that class that wrote a, um, a, a paper about um, non-proliferation. We were, we were asked basically to take a stance on um, the use of nuclear weapons. And I was the only person that said they're basically never um, excusable to, to use, which is not, um, you know, that was definitely a young college essay that I wrote. But it's interesting to me that the Air Force then went and gave me <laughs> you know, the job of nuclear missile operator, because it just showed that they didn't ask or do any research on me or who I was or what job I would be good at at all. They, they um, did zero background research. There's no chance. There's no chance. I mean, I was yeah. an English literature major who applied yeah. for public affairs and ended up getting nuclear missile operations. So anyway, um, I would say to, to his last to his last point, um, it's not a sudden point of view um, or a change of heart or something. Um, it's something I thought about a lot. And, and that leads me to, I guess, answer the other part of your question, which is why did I write it? And it, I wrote it to start a conversation, um, which, you know, the reason I didn't um, respond to any of the comments or stuff I saw on Facebook is because e even the person who was disagreeing with me, you know, most passionately was doing exactly what I wanted them to do when I wrote the article, which is talking about it. Um, that's yeah. all I wanted. I, I don't want everyone to agree with me. I want people to talk about it. And specifically, I want, um, I would like to see young officers and the crew dogs that are out there right now and the instructors and the whiskeys, like I want a, an environment where they can have these discussions, um, where they can have, they can toss around how they actually feel about these, they can work it out. Um, and uh, they can be critical thinkers, because integrity doesn't, um, and, and maybe this gets to the point about integrity. Um, mm -hmm. Integrity thrives in a culture where you can have honest conversations. Um, and that's really all I was trying to get to in terms of his questions about what am I, you know, he said, am I questioning my own integrity or the integrity of the crew force? I would say yes and yes. Um, I was, it was an honest look at myself during that time, which is something I'm still, um, you know, taking a look at. And it's also an honest look at the crew force and the, the types of conversations that, um, you know, I think we should be having in the crew force. Yeah, well, so to have the conversation, and this is one of the reasons I do this, I do a podcast in the first place, because I don't know the last time I had, I take that back, w with friends of mine who know me and I know them, uh, I can have a reasonable discussion on Facebook, although for the most part, mm -hmm. I just do my best to avoid any kind mm -hmm. of reason discussion on Facebook for probably the obvious reasons everybody complains about. Mm -hmm. But the reason I do this is because like a lot of podcasts out there, right? Our, our time is theoretically near infinite outside of our own schedule constraints, right? We can talk at length about this one particular question, for instance, 
mm-hmm. to get at in this case, what I assumed to be the case for you is that this isn't just a sudden turn of events. And I would say a change of heart could still be fair, right? People evolve over time. You could come to the end of your tour and realize, oh, that never felt good at all. But <clears throat> it do- that doesn't seem to be true in your situation anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So where do we where do we collectively go from here? So you've been looking at this issue for a long time. Yeah, you made a film about Damascus, correct? That's what, I know I read it out of your bio. Can you actually take a minute and, and describe what that project was about? Because I wanted to ask you about Greg and that quote anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I wrote a, a feature length, which is to say a full length film, um, a script about Damascus. So it hasn't been turned into an actual film yet. Um, okay, gotcha. it's, a, it's a little bit above my pay grade right now. It's about a $15 million film is what if it was actually going to be made. So it's the kind of film that like later in my career, if I have, um, you know, some success, maybe that's something that could be made someday. But it did win a, um, a Sloan grant um, to uh, you know, further the research and further um, the writing on that script. And I'll be out actually in, um, uh, I'm in LA right now, but I'll be here in another week as well for a slummit with the Sone Foundation uh, discussing the script and, and looking at ways possibly to turn it into a real film. Um, okay. So yeah, so that's where that one's at um, right now is um, just, you know, and, and I think the, um, I mean, I don't know how far down the Damascus rabbit hole we wanna go. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of, I think uh, the response from um, many missileers was sort of like, oh, you're dredging up, um, you know, something that happened a long time ago with a totally different weapon system. Um, and, and that's, that's fair. And I, I would say that I have, you know, my response to that is that the way I feel about nuclear weapons now um, is that I, you know, they're an incredibly destructive weapon and I don't, I wish that they didn't exist in the world, but I'm also a realist and they do exist. Um, and I think that as long as they exist, we should have, um, we should be very, very good stewards of these weapons. Um, and I think that by and large, the people I met in the Air Force are good stewards of these weapons. But I think that the only thing that we should be working at harder than stewarding them well is getting rid of them and, and working to get rid of them. Um, and I think, you know, the response with Damascus, again, is that um, we, we're the country who created these weapons. We have stewarded them incredibly well. I saw firsthand how seriously we take this job and how extensive the safeguards are. And we still had 32 near nuclear disasters over the course of our program uh, and hundreds of more mishaps. And so what do you think is going on in North Korea? You know, what's going on on a flight line in India as they posture their weapons against Pakistan? What's going on behind the veil of secrecy in Russia? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like, that's my response to, um, well, Damascus is an outdated event. It's like, well, it's outdated for us, but there's other programs that haven't even gotten to that stage of, you know, oh, yeah. of technology yet. There's still nuclear so, or liquid fuel nuclear rockets or nuclear missiles out there. That was one of the biggest oh, yeah. dangers to Titan II, right, was liquid fuel. Mm-hmm. So then do you think you're familiar with Global Zero, I'm assuming, and, and other such mm-hmm. movements and messages that talk about a world without nuclear weapons? Sure. Is it possible? And what do you think it would take for us to, to get rid of nuclear weapons across the board? Because you because you've talked about we shouldn't have these weapons and you wish they didn't exist, which, which I mm-hmm. happen to feel the same way. And I'll, I'll speak to that in a second if we have time. But 
you're also a realist, right? And there's mm -hmm. several other countries at least acknowledged that have them and potentially other countries that are working toward them. So how does that work? What does it look like? Is it possible or no? Well, it's absolutely possible. And this is, um, you know, again, another thing that um, the, the U.S. Air Force doesn't like to have this discussion because they're not um, really, truly interested in nonproliferation, in my opinion. Um, and, and I would say that the U.S. government is even less interested in that, no matter what they say. Um, so it, Global Zero, in, in my opinion, is, is absolutely possible, but it's going to take very strong leadership um, from the United States. Again, the people who created these weapons. Um, and, and the problem is, our, we aren't putting our money where our mouth is. You know, every single time that North Korea launches a test ICBM, the whole country goes crazy. We, we get up in arms. It's on, you know, the front page of every headline. Um, but how many test launches happened in Vandenberg over the last year? Um, at, you know, and look at GBSD, the, the, the new weapon system that's going to replace Minuteman. This is another great example. I mean, we're saying that we want other countries to get rid of their weapons, but we're creating a more sophisticated, more intelligent, better version of Minuteman right now. And there's going to be 400 of them on alert between now and the next four decades. Mm -hmm. That's not, those aren't steps towards nonproliferation. Um and I've heard some people say, well, yeah, but GBSD is going to allow us to reduce our arms. And that's really a thin argument because, you know, the, it's going to reduce the size of, of the active arsenal day 50 or so missiles. Um, but the 400 that are, um, you know, they're going to be more effective. They're going to be smarter. They're going to be ready to go every day and not going up and down and off alert. So we're not reducing the size of our arsenal at all. So. If we're going to reach global zero, the U.S. has to um, lead the way in getting rid of our weapons. And I'm not saying, again, I'm a realist. I'm not saying that we go to zero overnight. I'm not saying that we, you know, take our arsenal. I'm not even saying that we cut it in half overnight. I'm saying that we have to immediately begin to take steps to um, towards nonproliferation. We've got to start getting rid of weapons systematically and consistently, and we have to demand that other countries do the same thing. Uh, until then, when we demand that other countries like North Korea don't um, get nuclear weapons or Iran, you know, why would they listen to us when they know that we're not doing that either? We're, we're going to we're continuing to develop our arsenal as strong as possible. So why would they you know, they're going to follow our lead on that. And uh, our lead is basically that we're comfortable with a world that has a lot of nuclear weapons. Well, so the counter argument, right, is that we're not. <clears throat> How can I steel man this? Our intentions are different and largely, I won't say peaceful, because that's probably not the right way to put it, but our intentions are stability inducing versus a North Korea or an Iran or a Pakistan that does have an active program is not. Mm -hmm. Do you buy that? Because you're, you're essentially well, talking about the, a double standard, right? Because we, we test about three a year off the West Coast, and you're right, we're, we're upgrading the system for the first time in several decades mm -hmm. and asking everyone else to just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. We've got your back, right? But mm -hmm. what about the mm -hmm. counter argument to that? Yeah, I mean, again, I would agree with the fact that we are, I mean, we are a more stable country. I mean, North Korea is an unstable regime. Um, so sure, I feel better about us having nuclear missiles than them. But again, if the goal is a global zero, 
then we've got to take the lead. Um, and I think, you know, what's important to remember is that we're not talking about, um, you know, North Korea catching up to us, right? Like we, we've got way, I mean, we're just like, like exponentially more powerful yeah, than we'll take them comes time. to this oh, conversation. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like they're catching up to us. So we need to um, take those steps. I mean, the only other country that has an, an arsenal that is that is that matches ours is it's obvious. It's Russia, right? And I think the question in this situation that I have for people, because the the classic argument of deterrence is, you know, that there hadn't been a, and this is ultimately another reason why I wrote the article. You know, that nuclear weapons made the world safer. That was the classic argument of deterrence. There was there were no, um, you know, conventional. Um, wars happening in Europe or in the states that we were engaged in since World War II. And what's happened over the last few weeks is that it's really just poked a hole in that, in that argument. And I think the question to ask yourself is now that we are once again in a, con the world finds itself in a conventional war uh, in, in Europe nearly, but um, with Russia, do you feel safer knowing that, that, Russia has nuclear weapons in the midst of that war? And the answer is obviously no. Um, so, and again, the other point, I guess, um, that, that I like, or that I, you know, try to make is that by the time we have these conversations, you know, by the time we get into the situation like we're in right now with Ukraine, it's too late. Like it takes decades. It's going to take decades and decades to get rid of these weapons. And we've just done nothing about it for the last 30 to 40 years. So does does Russia Ukraine worry you? Are you worried about an escalation? Are you worried about theater level nuclear weapons? Did Putin's so-called rise in alert status worry you? Where do you where do you think this goes? You can answer any or all parts of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think um of course yeah, it, it all worries me, I would say. Um I don't uh I don't have a whole lot of um you know, faith in, in Vladimir Putin's um, restraint, shall we say, at this point. Uh, I mean, beyond that, I would say I'm not a policy expert. Uh, I'm not a conventional warfare expert. Um, in general, does it, it does it worry me that he would use nukes? Uh, probably, like, it worries me that he would use strategic nukes um, in, like, you know, smaller scale, small theater sort of use. Uh, I'm not particularly worried that he's going to, you know, wipe the city off the face of the earth. Um, but that said, you know, he, I mean, this is the classic like madman with a, with a nuke situation. So um, he's really gambled everything on what's going on there right now. And if he, you know, if he starts to lose and he, he, he has nothing left to lose, he's gambled everything on this, his entire legacy um, you know, the entire political structure that he's been building over there. It's all come, it all comes down to this for him. And I worry definitely about a guy like that having access to the kind of nuclear arsenal that he has. I just read today that the, the number of troops committed to the Ukraine effort is close to half of the Russian army's active duty force, hmm. which hmm. I did not realize. I thought their force would have been larger or that they wouldn't have committed half, the, half of their troops. Um, hmm to an effort like that, although <clears throat> Ukraine is, is such a critical piece of what at least Putin and some Russians think to be traditional Russian territory and Russian mm -hmm. sovereign space, right? So I suppose from that angle, I could see it. So let mm -hmm. me turn back to the, to the conversation that 
you started and you hope to start or hope to have started. And I think in some ways it has started. And you point out in the, in the piece early on in your Guardian piece that you've heard more about the possibility of a nuclear exchange in the last, I think, few days or few weeks than you did your entire time as a missileer. Um, which mm -hmm. for you and me both, right, we were missileers during the global war on terror era. We were still in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly when I was there and then trying to pull out of Iraq and we just pulled out of Afghanistan. So the Air Force, like all the other military services, at least publicly, were, were focused on that. So in terms of a conversation now about great powers, about nuclear weapons and about the dangers that these that these weapons may pose that we still maintain them where do you want the conversation to go what happens from here um and then following on to that what happens for you like what's your next piece it sounds like this isn't a flash in the pan this isn't the only article or the only piece that you're going to offer up in terms of your thoughts on the subject as time goes on yeah that's right no i've already written um another one basically about um kind of making some of the points that we've already chatted about here. Um, so there, there is another article that um, will, will likely come out um, in The Guardian in the coming weeks. Um, I mean, I would say again, it just like the, the ultimate goal is, is a conversation. Um, I mean, I, I've had some, and I, I think hopefully a conversation in the public at large. I mean, that's what, that's the reason why I'm writing the Damascus script, right? Is because these, you know, films, um, that reach a really wide audience have the ability to start sort of a, a you know a conversation about this sort of stuff and bring nukes back into the you know the zeitgeist um, if you will and, and films are a great way to do that tv shows um, you know a reference for me would be a film like or a tv series like chernobyl i don't know if, um, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that but yep. you know that's a sort of like that's very much a reference for what we're doing with damascus it's um it's hopefully a conversation starter on a, an issue that's been dormant for a while. And to that end, I mean, I've had some, I, I won't say any names because um, they're all still, you know, out there active in the crew force or teaching or whatever, but, you know, for every, um, I would say for every, you know, nasty comment that I read on, on Facebook, I had a, you know, someone that I actually served with who actually knew me uh, and knew my character reach out and, and a lot of them didn't say, I agree with you. They said, I disagree with you, but I appreciate, you know, the perspective. I appreciate, you know, the conversation. And, and I had a lot of people reach out, including, you know, former flight commanders and, and people in my leadership to say that, um, you know, even though they didn't, you know, may, they may not have agreed with me, they appreciated the fact that um, it is starting a conversation in, in the crew force. And some of them even, um, I had heard that, they even brought the article into their, you know, classrooms and, and that they okay. were talking about it. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that would, you know, that's ultimately, um, you know, my goal is to just keep, keep the conversation going. Um, and uh, like I said, the, you know, I think um, the, the first article really, and I think this is one of the things that rubbed people the wrong way too. I mean, the guardian put the, um, that headline on it, that title on it, which really yeah, didn't necessarily, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even see that title until it was published. Um, and that really wasn't what the article was about, um, but it's what the next one is about. Um, <laughs> so I, I think for me, okay. that first article was really just um, starting the conversation. And hopefully if I'm fortunate enough, um, I'd like to kind of just make a position clear and give people something to actually respond to. I think 
Um, this time there were a lot of people that didn't like the tone. I'd like to give people some actual, um, you know, concrete arguments that they can either agree or, or disagree with on the next one. So you, you mentioned feedback and, and it's, I like the idea. I like the fact that the article has made its way into the active crew force. So as, so as far as you know, or as far as you've been told that there are crew members who are on active duty having this conversation because of your piece, they either saw it from a flight commander or they've heard about it through the grapevine. Or... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to flatter myself too much. I don't know how widespread it is, but, but I can tell you that I had, you know, multiple people reach out who are on crew or instructors or otherwise still in the community um, and say that, um, you know, basically they were discussing, you know, it was being discussed amongst, um, you know, amongst the ranks. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I caused a, you know, flash yeah, the whole crew force, but uh, yeah, I definitely had people tell me that it, they were talking about it and that it was, um, you know, being discussed. So, um, so have you been into filmmaking so how long have you been interested in filmmaking? This is kind of, I'm gonna kind of rewind a little bit just because you know, you've since earned an MFA from Columbia. You are continuing in the filmmaking industry. Um, you said you're meeting next week with the Sloan Foundation about mm -hmm. Damascus, right? So, so this work is ongoing. Have you always been into this type of work? Has this always been the plan, if you will, after your military time, the academy and your active duty time ended or did you fall into this late how'd you get to this yeah i would say it's something i um it's definitely not always been a part of the plan i i um didn't really have any clue about filmmaking or any interest in it while i was at the academy and then while i was on um while i was pulling crew i was really just kind of looking for an outlet i was looking for creative outlets um and um and also kind of starting to think about, you know, early in my time on crew, like I, I knew that I was planning on getting out in, you know, May of 2017. And so as that date got closer, I just started thinking more and more about what I would do when it came. And um, so the whole time I was on crew, I was, you know, reading uh, a lot of scripts. Um, I was watching a lot of films and I, and I shot quite a few short films during that time as well. Um, so it was something that just kind of became a slow build. And then I started uh, working as a freelance, um, camera operator and assistant camera man on um, like film and TV shows, worked some Walking Dead and some stuff like that once I got out of the Air Force. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, after about a year and a half, um, during that time I applied to grad school and after about a year and a half of being out, I went back to grad school and kind of fully um, committed to that, to that plan. Um, so yeah, it's been something that's really, I would say, has been in the works since 2012, 2013, when I first started pulling crew. Um, and it's been kind of a slow, slow burn until the last three or really four or five years when it's been like a full time commitment. Okay, so in terms of projects, and your interests, what else is on the horizon other than Damascus, other than this conversation, what else do you have working or what other um, I don't know the right word, genres, categories, what, what other topics do you intend to tackle in the next couple of years? Yeah, so um, I've been working on a ton of short films, I'm wrapping up an animated short film right now that I'm excited about. Um, and uh, the next kind of big thing on, um, on my dream sheet is that I'm developing a, uh, a, my first feature film as a director. Um, and it's a Western thriller. It's definitely, I, I was writing a lot about missiles and about the air force so i was looking for 
a story and a genre that would that I could kind of keep exploring how I how I felt about those things, but not necessarily be tied to the world since I right. I was writing so much like in the military genre. Um, so I ended up writing a a western thriller about a cowboy who gets buried alive by a psycho rancher um, and has to like relive the events of the day. To, to try and solve his own murder essentially and it's very it's kind of um you know based on being in underground missile silos and trying to figure out how the choices that i made led me to <laughs> to that moment um <laughs> uh, so it's okay. it's uh yeah it's a, it's definitely um you know uh i mean I, I wouldn't even say it's a metaphor for missiles or anything it's more just sort of like um a genre thriller about sort of the emotions that can that went along with that go along with anybody who's trying to to own the take responsibility for, for their actions and just figure out how the events of your life led you to where you are today which is something that i think anybody outside of um you know our job could relate to yeah i, <clears throat> I was gonna say an allegory for being a misleader but maybe you <laughs> won't use those words but i'll but i'll say that because it sounds I mean, even as someone who did choose the job, there were days where I was still like, how did I end up here? <laughs> this is not, when I graduated high school, this is not what I pictured. Yeah. Uh, good or bad, this is not what I pictured. Um, so any last um, last words sounds a bit off, but any last <laughs> thoughts, you know, before we wrap up here, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, I will say that, you know, as you might expect, right, there's a number of people who listen to this that were either that were either in the missile community, just by virtue of knowing me, um, or they were adjacent to it somehow, they're Air Force folks, uh, many of them veterans or retired, anything that you want to say, anything else that any other, uh, I guess, points that you would want to put onto the nuclear weapons conversation or the broader, um, the broader point, which I think is, it's not a violation of your integrity to have this conversation. If anything, it's reinforcement of your integrity to have it. If not to put words in your mouth, but that's how I would paraphrase it. So any last thoughts on that or anything else you'd like to share before we close it up? I, I think that's really well said. And I, I would stand by that. Um, you know, I think um, the, you know, the only other thing I would add is just that um, if there's any folks out there from the missile community, you know, and you want to chat, you know, give me a shout. Like, it, I think the thing that, um, you know, it's just all about conversation for me. Um, and, you know, the response that the Air Force, that the Association of Missileers um, had to the piece, um, I have no, no problem with that. Again, like they sort of, they, they have a differing point of view. They put out a lengthy reply with, um, you know, a clear opinion on, on the matter. Um, I think that's great. You know, the, the, the thing that, you know, I just sort of chuckle at is a lot of the comments that come after that on Facebook or wherever, when, yeah. you know, people go after, you know, me personally, who don't know me personally, um, things like that. So I would say if, if you're, if you're upset about it, go find somebody um, who, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't understand or agree with your point of view and have a conversation with them about it. Um, that's really all I was trying to do. And hopefully um, if I have the opportunity in, in future articles, um, I can lay out, you know, a little bit more of my position and exactly how I feel about the issue. But, um, you know, for sure, I would say that, um, you know, everybody who's out there on crew, um, I think that it does take integrity to have have these sorts of tough conversations. And that, that doesn't make you a bad um, missile operator. It doesn't make you a bad person. Um, and I would just, you know, also 
you know, love to go on record saying that, you know, the finest people I've ever worked with were all when I was a, a missile operator, right? You know, there's some of them are still my best friends. Um, and, uh, you know, I, they're, they're great folks. So I hope that, uh, you know, this gets a good conversation going within the, the ranks. Yeah, well, it sounds like it already has. So I'm excited to see what the next piece looks like. We'll see what the Guardian decides to title it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I've heard that before, right? In media, and particularly if it's going to be online, oftentimes we don't get to pick our own headlines. It's whatever is clickbaity enough and still somewhat accurate. So it is what it is. But I definitely encourage uh, anyone, if you've listened to this conversation but haven't read the piece, I'll link to it in the blog post. But it's if you search Cole Smith Guardian or Cole Smith Nuclear Missile Guardian, something to that effect, you're definitely you're going to hit on it. Um, We'll see when the next one comes out. And then I, I think ultimately what matters the most, right, is you want the conversation to happen and you don't seem at all bitter about the people who respond to you and disagree, which is the first step into having a legit conversation that doesn't just devolve into, I don't know, I guess Facebook personal attacks, which it shouldn't surprise me that you got those, but I guess, I mean, everybody can be subject to them if you write something people don't like. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, um, hopefully don't take away from the button at the end of the podcast here. But one of the, you know, one of the things that I would love to actually say, especially if there's any people from the crew force listening, yeah. is that one of the comments that I think like did kind of like I felt my, bro- my blood pressure rise a little <laughs> bit was um, you basically said that, um, you know, because I had pulled nearly 300 alerts because I had pulled so many alerts, I was a below average uh, crew oh member God. and that was one that really rubbed me the wrong way because that was something that I felt within you know when I was in as well because essentially what that person is saying is that I didn't go to the shop which means you know right. when you go to the shop you ultimately have a little bit lower alert count and you're people can kind of see of the, right yeah you're one of the better officers and you know my response to that is that I I knew again in 2012 when I started that I was getting out in 2017 so I you know I uh, made a conscious choice not to go. I'm not saying that I would have been picked for OTV or something, but I, I did make a conscious choice to stay on crew. And anybody who was in my leadership knows I was not volunteering for any of the shop positions. Um, and I was also during that time, um, you know, I had three brand new deputies that I brought on to alert. I had two other deputies. So in total, I had five deputies that I shepherded, including three brand new ones who went on to have really, really great careers as missile operators. Um, we did great on our evals. Um, I was also, you know, volunteering for, you know, holiday alerts and all that kind of stuff. So it, it rubbed me the wrong way that like what he thought was an insult, which is that I had a high alert count was like the highest compliment you could pay me, so, you know? Yeah. So and, and, uh, and like to this day, I think now it's a mark of respect. I mean, it's a badge of honor and people get patches for it and people get recognized for it, right? Where you know, evidently this person is probably from the generation that brought me up or perhaps from my generation, you know, who, yeah, yeah we grew up in the old world and the fewer alerts, the better. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, well, and that's, again, that's part of the reason why I wasn't, you know, I didn't get bitter about really any of those comments because yeah. like the, I'm reading comments from people who like, you know, served in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and um, they're all negative and they didn't know me. And then I'm getting texts from people who served like four or five years ago with me and they were all, you know, had nothing but nice things to say. So that was why it was, and I was really grateful for the people who did reach out. Um, but it was mostly older, 
you know, older missileers who just, um, I think it was a different perspective. I and mean, we saw a lot change just in the, you know, a few years that we were around. I mean, that oh, yeah. period from 2000, like 13 to 2015 was, I mean, we could have a whole discussion just about that. It was wild. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a separate several hours that the world changed every single day in that period, it felt yeah. like. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I got to let you go, but Cole, seriously, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, hopefully we can do it again and, and hopefully the conversation does continue and, and you'll be one of those people keeping it going forward. Cole Smith, uh, real quick plug also, if you go to colesmithfilm.com, uh, there are a couple of cool videos on there that, that showcase some of your work and I think a link to donate to keep the work going. So if you're interested at all, at least go watch the videos and if you feel so inclined, donate to the effort. Cole Smith, thanks so much for joining me. Take care. Have a uh, good luck out in LA. Enjoy the weather. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate the conversation. Right, Take care. We'll stay in touch. All right. All right. And Cole has left the Zoom room. Um, I really do want to thank him again for taking the time to talk with me this evening. Uh, he was only able to give me about an hour. So there were plenty of other, there were plenty of rabbit holes that we grazed over that we absolutely could have dove into. Um, so hopefully, Cole, this is an open invite to come back on. Certainly you're busy, I'm busy, everyone's busy, but um, we should definitely make the time here in the future, especially if this conversation about nuclear weapons, the propriety of their use, what it might take to rid the world of nuclear weapons, whether you, as an individual now, this is for anybody, whether you agree with the possibility um, shouldn't say it that way. Whether you agree or not that we should get rid of nuclear weapons, right? Whether you see merits in maintaining them, whether you see launching a nuclear weapon as an ethical or moral decision or not, this conversation is absolutely vital, I think. And I, and I do think you know, I, I tried my best to keep my opinions to myself. This was a, a platform and an opportunity for Cole to share his take, to talk about the article, to talk a bit about the feedback he'd received. You know, and I still don't want to turn this into a whole nother editorial by me. Uh, and I do have another episode coming out. In fact, a solo episode to talk about this very issue anyway. So you can, you can hear me wax poetic in another session. But what I will say is, I think it's refreshing, frankly, and certainly Cole's not the only person, but it's refreshing to have someone put a piece out there, put his thoughts out there, understanding that it's gonna generate a conversation, perhaps some minor controversy in our old operations community. But at the end of the day, right, his response to his detractors or to his critics is what I think is the most, um, uh, what's the word, demonstrative of his intent. And I think it's, it's frankly a valuable teaching moment for all of us who are trying to engage in important conversations, but don't perhaps because every time we open Facebook, our head explodes, right? So, you know, the, the executive director of a Missileer Alumni Association basically uh, took him to task for a, for a variety of parts of, or for parts of his article. And a, regardless of whose side you take, right? Cole's response is, thank you. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted. It's engagement with the piece. I will say, right? I think what Mr. Warner, the executive director at AAFM did 
and, and perhaps knowingly, writing the letter and sending it out to the membership, I would hope took people back to the article. I think, in fact, let me look back at it so I don't speak out of turn or I don't say anything wrong. The one thing I wish, and I'm not gonna get into whether I agree with, with Mr. Warner or not, it's not the point of this. The one thing I wish he would have done was link to the article. It occurred to me, and now that I look at it again in my email, there's no link to the piece. He quotes it at various points in the letter, but he never links to it. I think the one thing he could have done at least was link to the article because the conversation is what matters. It's not that we all agree. The conversation is what matters. And about that, I think Cole is correct. I also think, you know, as someone who spent all of his Air Force time, almost all of his Air Force time at missile bases, at the missile wings, and spent a lot of time teaching other missileers, you know, it's easy for me to say I spent a lot of time thinking about what the job meant and what using a nuclear weapon might mean. And I was asked that type of question when I would give tours to family members or to members of the public or to, you know, we would get distinguished visitors here and there. And if I happen to be on that alert or if I'm scheduled to give a tour or if I'm, you know, whatever, if I'm talking to somebody from the, from the public, from outside the community, I might get asked that question. I can't remember if I was ever asked that question by a crew member um, or even a, a commander. Now I do remember a couple of commanders and ops officers, you know, a couple in particular who I respected a lot then and do now, who were the type to have that conversation. And we would often get into more cerebral type conversations and meditations on what it means to be in this job and what this job means and what deterrence means. And we would talk about the argument behind, you know, 40, 50 years of nuclear weapons on the earth has meant 40 or 50 years without a conventional world war. Cole made that point and he um, took issue with that argument. And as somebody who has made that argument, I have thought a lot lately about whether that argument is valid um, it's, it's probably an indisputable fact, right, that we had not escalated to a World War II-like scenario since 1945, notwithstanding Russia-Ukraine, because despite how jarring it is to see war in Europe, this is certainly not the first conflict we've had between conventional forces of any size since World War II, right? Iraq and Afghanistan, that's fresh in our minds. Vietnam, Korea, right on the heels of World War II. There's been conflict all over the world in the last 50 years. And so perhaps what we could say is nuclear weapons staved off a great power war. But as um, Peter Zion, who is a, an analyst who spent 12 years at Stratfor, and he's written a series of books, and he was just interviewed on another podcast, um, this one by uh, author and retired SEAL Jack Carr. He was interviewed recently, and he takes um, I would say a different approach to analysis of international affairs, and he focuses on political geography and why this year and this time frame is in fact the last chance for Russia to do the types of things it's doing. Um, Peter Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N, if you're at all interested in this type of stuff, look him up. I won't go into it in depth right now. I'm in the middle of one of his books right now, and it's um, an interesting take on world affairs. And for someone like me who 
largely grew bored of the same analyses over and over and over again, reading a lot of articles in foreign affairs and foreign policy and all those types of platforms. Um, it's a different angle. It's a different look. Anyway, uh, I'm digressing now. Really appreciate Cole coming on. No matter your opinion, I absolutely think you should read the article. Um, I need to make sure that I could release this letter. I think it's important, frankly, that anybody who is interested in reading Cole's piece and in the larger conversation about the use of nuclear weapons and the presence in our military arsenal of these weapons and of our leadership in the world around these weapons. If you're interested in this conversation, I think the AFM letter is just as important to look at. And then consider picking up a book or reading some more articles on this. If nothing else, learn about the history and get a sense of where we come from. Um, as, as a matter of, uh, or as a teaser, if you will, of the solo episode of what I'm going to go into um, next time, by the time you listen to this, it will be the episode following this one. I, I do not think, let me say this differently. When I was an instructor of missileers, the goal was, my goal was, to enable every crew member to be ready for anything. It's impossible to predict the future. And anything is in, in what you would call in mathematics, the limit, right? You're never going to be ready for literally anything, but to give operators the comfort, the skill set, and, and really the, the developed instinct necessary to walk into an unknown situation, comfortable that they know that they will navigate it well. Even if they don't know what to do in the moment, they will figure it out. That's what I was trying to impart on crew members. Um, so I think, and part of that was so that we could be the most lethal fighting force we could be, right? To be a lethal nuclear weapon operator, it, it carries a certain context that might be unique, right? Because we're talking about millions of lives, perhaps not individual lives on a battlefield between infantry units or armor units even. We wanted our operators to be ready because that is a key component to the deterrence equation. If you, if you understand and buy into the capability times will deterrence equation. However, I, I don't think, I don't know why I struggled to phrase this. I wanted my operators to be as lethal and as capable as possible. I do also think that we can rid the world of nuclear weapons. And I would even venture to say, maybe we should. It is possible to hold both positions at the same time. And I think Cole is right, that it isn't a violation of mine or his or anyone else's integrity on crew right now as we speak, it's not a violation of your integrity on alert to say in one breath, I will launch if directed, but I don't want to. That was my position every day and every alert. I have my own reasons for why I would have executed a, a lawful order as directed by the president. But 
at, at no point did I want to see combat as a nuclear missile operator. And, and I don't know that anybody wants to see combat simply to go out and kill people, right? There are, there are plenty of stories of special operators, you know, SEALs, Rangers, those types of individuals who they seek the experience, they seek that moment, and they miss it when they leave the military. But I don't think it is the killing of other humans and the destruction of, of whole city blocks and states and, and families and livelihoods. That, that is a byproduct of war, but that is not what people miss, right? What I miss about my time, I'll speak for myself. I, I didn't spend a day as a SEAL or a Ranger, so I don't know what I'm talking about there. What I miss about my time are people like Cole, the operators in my squadrons, the supervisors I had a lot of respect for, the friends I made, the fun times we had on and off alert, even, even with the specter, even with the possibility hanging over us that this, this alert mission could turn into a combat mission. I, I, miss, I miss good times and there were good times to be had in my 13 years. And to listen to Cole talk, I'm sure he had plenty of good times uh, in his tour on active duty. But, and, and it's unfair to say, right? Because I can't say had we gone to combat, I would or would not miss it, we didn't. And, and we lived in a world where combat meant something totally different than it would to um, a soldier on the ground, right? Or even a fighter pilot, right? Combat means something totally different in our world. I don't necessarily miss the stress that comes with having to prepare to fight a war that is um, with existential consequences. I don't necessarily miss that stress. I do miss the conversations about it. I do miss having conversations uh, like the one I had with Cole this evening that you've listened to. Um, I really do miss those conversations, which is why I am now moving into political psychology and strategic behavior, right? These are the types of conversations I wanna to continue to have because I think making decisions under stress, the difficulty of that is only compounded now when you add these types of variables to it. Nuclear weapons, the challenge of geography that Russia faces, the economic turmoil and all of the economic consequences that are coming of this for the Russians and for everyone else. These are complex situations. I'm not a policy expert, and I know Cole said the same thing about himself, but ultimately in a democratic society like ours, like the US, everyone should be willing and able to engage in this conversation. We all have our lives to live, but there comes a moment where we should be having conversations like this, particularly conversations that have existential implications like nuclear weapons. I've rambled on long enough. Um, I tend to do that, but you know, like Cole and I both said, we could have gone another hour or two on, uh, in, into various rabbit holes. And so I do hope we get a chance to talk again and that you guys can join in and listen. March 22nd, 2022, that was Cole Smith. Uh, today, a filmmaker, director, producer, um, writer as well of um, multiple screenplays. And I really do hope that Damascus hits a wide audience and hits the big screen at some point in the near future. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. 
however you can find me online through social media or by email, please, please, please hit me up. Um, let me know what you think of the show. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know if there's a conversation you would like to hear through this platform or if there is a guest, someone you'd like to hear from through this platform. And I will absolutely do everything I can to make that happen. Uh, until the next time, take care, stay safe out there. We'll talk to you soon.